everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're back with you again this week with another exciting case, but we hope last week you enjoyed our Halloween episode, The Watcher. I still can't sleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't had an opportunity, please check out our webpage. We have our own website called criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. You can listen to all of our episodes there and see our show notes. And also our tech support has linked it with our Facebook page. So you can check out what we post on Facebook, or you can go to Facebook and look up Criminal Discourse Podcast too. And of course, you can listen to us on any of our platforms on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In, and the new edition, iHeartRadio, but we're still holding out for Pandora. That still hasn't come through. I did have somebody ask me, have you heard anything from Pandora? I'm like, not yet. So to Pandora's credit, I think what takes longer with Pandora is that they have to set up a profile for the podcast so that it knows who to have listened to it because it's something like with Pandora where based on the music that you already listened to or the podcast that you listen to, it inserts new ones. So it may have to sort of create that the keywords or the tags for it so that it knows who whose feed to put it into. So that's probably what's taking a little bit longer. Not that Pandora's told me that. <laughs> that's just right. me. Assuming that that's how Pandora works. <laughs> So maybe by Christmas, we'll have that. That's my hope. That's my Christmas wish. There you go. Okay, so we're going to just start right in with our new episode on Carolyn Warmus, the fatal attraction killer. And Maddie, have you heard about this case? I've heard bits of pieces, but I've not heard the entire story. So I'm excited to hear you tell it. Okay, so this was, I know this past spring, there were some television specials regarding this case. So that kind of piqued my interest in again, because I, like you, had heard about it, but not, didn't really know the whole story. So I'm going to start with an article written by Janet Crawley of the Chicago Tribune. This came out on March 3rd, 1991. So she wrote an article entitled, In New York Suburb, Trial Blends Love, Infidelity, Murder. And she goes on to write, and this is a direct quote, an attractive blonde school teacher, daughter of a Michigan millionaire, is charged with murdering her lover's wife in an attempt to have him all to herself. The prosecutor says she's obsessed. The defense says she's been framed. So we're going to let you decide if that's the case or not. So who is Carolyn Warmus? She was born in 1964 in Troy, Michigan, and grew up in Birmingham, an affluent suburb of Detroit. Her father was Thomas Warmus, who founded the American Way Life Insurance Company, and he was a self-made millionaire. So Carolyn's parents divorced in 1972 when she was seven years old, and Carolyn and her two younger siblings went to live with her father, who would end up marrying his secretary and moving the family to Franklin Village, known as the town that time forgot. So in 1981, Carolyn enrolled in the University of Michigan and graduated four years later with a degree in psychology. So upon graduation, she moved to New York City and earned a master's degree in elementary education from Columbia University. And in September of 1987, she was hired at Greenville Elementary School in Greenberg, New York. Now, once she started there, she was assigned a mentor and her mentor was Paul Solomon. He was about 40 years old at this time. I believe Carolyn was 23, 24, and he was a fifth grade teacher who was a 
again, signed as her mentor. He was hired in 1974 and had been working as a teacher for the past 13 years. He also coached soccer and basketball and golf at a community recreation programs, and by all accounts was a very popular teacher. Do we know Greenville Elementary? Was this an affluent elementary school for someone with a degree in psychology and a master's in elementary teaching to be teaching there? It seems like it would be a a higher-end school. No, I don't think so. I think it just was a public school. It wasn't a private school by any means. It was a public school in the New York public school system. Okay. So soon after meeting, the two began an affair, and this affair would last for about a year and a half. Now, Carolyn claims that she didn't know Paul was married at the time they started this affair, but she found out soon after, but still decided to stay with him. Now, Paul had told her repeatedly that once his daughter graduated high school, he would leave his wife, Betty Jean, for her. Kristen Solomon, his daughter, was 16 or 17 at the time they began this affair. So Carolyn claims that Paul told her he had an open marriage with his wife, Betty Jean, as she was also involved in extramarital affairs of her own. And Carolyn, in an interview once, stated that she had been invited over to the Solomon's residence for dinner on a couple of occasions. And she said it was awkward. You know, here she is, the mistress, sitting with the wife, having dinner. But she had also taken Kristen out on some ski outings and shopping trips to know her better. So at one point during their affair, Carolyn would end up transferring to another school district. So in January 15, 1989, while the affair was still going on, around 11.42 that evening, Paul Solomon had returned home and discovered his wife's body in their Greenberg condominium. Betty Jean Solomon had been pistol-whipped about the head and received nine gunshots to her back and the back of her legs, and all these shots were at close range, and not one of the nine shots missed. Paul Solomon called the police, and when they arrived, the patrolman allowed Paul to wash his hands and change his clothes as he had blood all over them. I'm not a cop, but I don't think that should be allowed. No. So investigators would discover that the New York 911 dispatcher received a distress call from a woman around 7.15 that evening from the Solomon residence, but the call was suddenly disconnected. Now, the dispatcher did notify police that this distress call came in, but they couldn't find the exact address as it was not properly listed when they used the reverse directory to locate the address. So the dispatcher was unable even to tell if the female caller was saying, he is trying to kill me or she is trying to kill me before the call was disconnected. And am I guessing that back in 89, they weren't recording the calls? Do they not have like a record? Oh, there was. What happened to it? Who knows? That'll come into play. I know, right? So Kristen Warmus wasn't home at the time of her mother's murder. She was away with friends on a ski trip. So the police come in and they start collecting evidence of the scene and taking photographs. And there is a black glove that was photographed next to Betty Jean's body. But for whatever reason, it was never placed into evidence. Paul Solomon was asked if he knew the whereabouts of this glove, because as the, you know, investigators are going through the photographs, they find the picture of the glove, they want to see where the glove is, you know, so it can be tested, and they can't find it. So they asked Paul to search his apartment for him, and he claims he looked over every square inch and couldn't find it. I was a little shocked by that. Like, why wouldn't you send a crime scene investigation unit back to the condo to search? Well, yeah, why wouldn't they have searched? They just take Paul's word for it? No, I, I don't have it. I don't have that glove. This is 89 and the New York suburb, you would think they would be more competent than this investigation-wise. And this glove would come to play a key role in upcoming 
upcoming trials. So shell casings were also found at the scene that matched a 25 caliber Beretta. So Paul Solomon was questioned by the Greenberg police detective Richard Constantino. And when Constantino arrived, he found Paul Solomon again, had no blood on him. And Paul claimed that he had rolled his wife over when he had found her. Now, Detective Constantino would come to find out that these patrol officers had allowed Paul to basically wash his hands, change his clothes. So when they took gunshot residue testing of his hands, of course, it would come back negative. But he really described Paul's behavior at the scene very sheepish. So here he is, the husband, He's discovered the body. He's acting in a very kind of sheepish manner. So, of course, he's at the front of the suspect list. The medical examiner would initially place Betty Jean's time of death between 2 and 6 p.m. So Detective Constantino would come to find out through his investigation about Paul's affair with Carolyn Warmus, but also his numerous affairs with other women, as Paul was a serial womanizer. So Carolyn Warmus isn't the first woman he cheated on his wife with. So Paul told police that the day of Betty Jean's murder, they had woken up and they had made love, and then they hung out and watched TV prior to him leaving for the evening. He says he received a call from Carolyn Warmus around noon, and they had made plans to meet up for her birthday later that evening. Now, the couple would meet up later at a restaurant in Yonkers connected to the Holiday Inn called the Treetops Lounge, where they would dine on hamburgers and oysters. It seems like an odd mix. It does seem like an odd mix. I mean, I eat oysters and I eat hamburgers, but not together. I'm assuming maybe one ordered one and one ordered the other. I don't know because I, I don't see them matching. So Warmus was brought in for questioning around 2 a.m. on January 16th. Now, she claims she was at her Upper East Side of Manhattan apartment most of the day. She had left around 6.45 for the 45-minute drive out to Yonkers to meet Paul at 7.30 at the Holiday Inn restaurant. Now, where their stories diverge is when Paul told police initially that after dinner, he left to go to a bowling alley to meet up with some friends before returning home and discovering his wife, Carolyn's version had them after dinner going out to the parking lot to her car where they had sex in the back seat. So Carolyn claims that during this initial interview, there were two investigators in the room with her. And after she told them about having sex with Paul that night, one of them left and then soon came back and said, yeah, Paul denies having any physical contact with you. And Carolyn told the police, well, he's lying because I can tell you the color of his underwear he had on that night. So she claims an officer left, came back shortly later and said, okay, we believe you. And Paul later admitted to having sex with Carolyn in the backseat of her car. So Paul would remain a suspect for the next year to year and a half. And soon after Betty Jean's death, Paul broke off his relationship with Caroline and they didn't see each other for about seven months per Carolyn Warmus interview that I read. So Paul began a new relationship within six months of his wife's death with a fellow school teacher. So Carolyn claims that one night after seven months of no communication, Paul shows up at her door. She invites him in and they start talking and they basically pick up where they left off having sex. But apparently this was only going to be for one night. So right after that night, Paul claimed he couldn't see her anymore because he felt if the police saw them together, they'd never leave him alone. So this seemed to confuse Carolyn as Paul was the one that had reached out to her after seven months of no communication. And Carolyn would also claim that Paul would get in touch with her just one more time and this time to invite her to Puerto Rico. So this was really the turning point in the investigation because Paul Solomon would tell police upon his return from Puerto Rico that Carolyn Wormus had followed him and his girlfriend there and stalked them. Now, Carolyn claims that Paul is the one that invited her, and when he failed to show up at the airport to pick her up, she tracked him down, you know, calling various hotels to find out where he was, to find out what was going on. 
Now, Paul would come to testify that Warmus had followed him and his current girlfriend and would phone their room constantly saying she wanted to meet up with him. And they became so fearful, they fled back to New York. And then once arriving in New York, told the police that she had basically stalked them there. So the investigators started looking into Carolyn Warmus a little more, and they found out that she had a restraining order put out against her from a man that she had been dating while attending the University of Michigan. So they had broken up, and soon after their breakup, he had actually become engaged to another woman. And the ex-boyfriend in the new fiance alleged that Carolyn would leave them harassing phone calls and notes, and it got so bad that they took out a restraining order against Carolyn to keep her from showing up unexpectedly at their wedding. In an interview that Carolyn had done years later, she claimed that they both had restraining orders out on each other. So information also came out that Carolyn had called Paul's new girl's friend's family in an effort to end their relationship. So now Carolyn Warmus became the prime suspect based upon Paul's claim of stalking and obsessive behaviors and the incident that she had in college. So Carolyn Warmus was arrested on February 2nd, 1990, more than a year after Betty Jean Solomon's murder. Now, there was no physical evidence linking Caroline to the crime, but she was charged with second-degree murder and second-degree criminal possession of a weapon. She was freed on $250,000 bond that was put up by her father. The prosecution's theory of the crime was that Carolyn had grew impatient, waiting for Paul to leave his wife, so she took matters into her own hands and killed her. Judge John Kerry would preside over Carolyn's trial. So the first indictment that came down from the grand jury, Judge Kerry would end up throwing out because he felt the grand jury were giving faulty instructions. But the second indictment would follow, and Carolyn's trial was scheduled for about two years later. It's insane to me, the like the murder on circumstantial, okay, but that they charged her with possession of a weapon when there's no physical evidence just seems really bizarre. Well, that information comes out at trial. So her first trial took place in White Plains, New York. It was actually the same courtroom on the 10th floor of this judicial building where Jean Harris was convicted of murdering her lover, Dr. Herman Tarnauer, of the Scarsdale Diet Doctor, if you remember that murder back in the day. This was the same courtroom. Her trial started on January 14, 1991, and seated a jury of eight women and two men. Now, from the start of this trial, there was a media frenzy around this case. Carolyn Warmus was dubbed the Fatal Attraction Killer, based upon the hit movie from 1987, starring Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I have. I love. I I like that movie a lot. <laughs> I still get twitchy when I see pots on the stove with the lid on. (laughs) I don't know what's in it. So Carolyn would be vilified in the press as the murderous homewrecker. And there's a pretty famous photograph out there. If you Google it, you'll find it where Carolyn is pulling up to the courthouse and she's photographed giving out of this limo or town car. And she has on a pink hat and a, a short skirt, like a pink skirt suit and sunglasses on. And you can just see her long legs in it. So she's... The media pushed forward this notion that she's this real-life version of Glenn Close's character from Fatal Attraction. So there are two prosecutors assigned to the case, Douglas Fitzmorris and James McCarthy, and the trial would take 13 weeks and involve the testimony of 56 witnesses. Now, the defense was being led by attorney David Lewis. Now, Paul Solomon would end up testifying against Carolyn under a grant of full immunity. I found that interesting, and I could not find anything as to why he was granted full immunity, as he wasn't charged in anything. So he testified that they had met in the fall of 1987 and soon became involved sexually. But by the spring, he wanted to break things off with her as they wouldn't be able to see each other much over the summer break. But he claims when he tried to do that, Carolyn cried and made life-ending statements such as, I can't live without you. So Solomon testified 
on cross-examination that he had signed a movie deal with Citadel Entertainment in the amount of $175,000, plus he received money from Betty Jean's life insurance policy. So another state's witness also granted full immunity was private investigator Vincent Parco. He testified that he had done some work for Carolyn Warmus in the past and that she had contacted him about purchasing a gun. Now, he admitted to selling Caroline a 25 caliber Jetfire automatic Beretta with a silencer for $2,500 just days before the killing. He also testified that Warmus told him that she threw the gun away after the murder off the parkway. Now, under cross-examination, he admitted to being infatuated with Carolyn and that he described himself as the master of deception as a private investigator. So some notes I read said that even the prosecutor's office found him sleazy. He sounds it. So if you think of a sleazy PI, he's a sleazy PI. So the state presented evidence in the form of telephone records from Warmus' apartment, again, located in Manhattan's Upper East Side. The call they presented was to Ray's Gun Shop, located in North Plainfield, New Jersey, that came in around 3.02 the afternoon of the murder. This was a female caller asking about purchasing bullets that would fit a Beretta pistol. Now, store records showed that only one female had come into the store that day and presented a driver's license in the name of Ellie Katai and had purchased 25 caliber ammunition. Now, Ellie Katai, who was from Long Island, had worked with Carolyn Warmus at a summer program and reports that her license had either been lost or stolen that summer. And she denied ever being at Ray's gun shop or buying ammunition. So now police were unable to determine, though, whether the shell casings at the crime scene matched the shell casings that were sold by the gun shop in New Jersey. For whatever reason, that connection wasn't made. The coroner testified as to the cause of Betty Jean's fatal injuries and would now place the time of death between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. And this was mostly based upon the 911 call that came in around 6.15. So prior to that, it was 2 to 6, and then it got changed to 6 to 8. The 911 operator testified to the call coming in from the Solomon residence, but again, was unsure whether it was a female caller saying he or she is trying to kill me. And the recording of the 911 call was never presented. Whether it exists, whether it was lost, whether it was recorded over, I do not know, but it was never presented at trial. The defense claimed that Solomon and Parco were setting Carolyn Warmus up, and both of them were involved in the murder of Betty Jean. Now, Carolyn denies that Parco ever sold her to gun, and Parco admitted on cross-examination that he initially lied to police for not telling them about the gun because he was afraid he had done something illegal. Uh, yeah. So I was like, <laughs> I get that part. Wait, I'm not supposed to just sell guns to people for cash? That's not supposed to happen? I don't think so. <laughs> no. I don't sell guns, but I'm pretty sure you can't do that. He also admitted on the stand that he was attracted to Carolyn, but that Carolyn had rebuffed his advances. So the defense also pointed out that the police had only searched Parco's office, but they never searched his home, trying to suggest that Detective Constantino failed to really thoroughly investigate Parco as a suspect. Now, Detective Constantino testified that everyone he investigated, including Betty Jean's own lover, had verified alibis, except for Paul Solomon, who was the prime suspect for over a year until their focus switched to Carolyn Warmus. And again, this was only after Paul and his girlfriend had returned from Puerto Rico, claiming that they had been stalked. The defense presented a witnesses of their own, and one of them was a Mr. Joseph Lizelle. So Mr. Joseph Lizelle testified to being in the bathroom at the bowling alley in Yonkers, the same bowling alley that Solomon admitted that he went to the evening of his wife's murder. He claims he overheard Solomon and Parco exchanging $20,000 and talking about tossing the gun into the river. He also claims he heard Solomon say, 
count it if you don't believe me, and later Parco saying, don't worry about the gun, it's in the deepest part of the river. However, on cross-examination, he admitted to having contact with Warmus' father prior to giving his testimony. So Mr. Warmus would testify on his daughter's behalf, and he claimed that Parco had contacted him prior to the start of trial, claiming that he could help his daughter, but only if he paid him up to six figures. And Mr. Warmus testified he did not take that deal. The defense also put on truck driver Antonio Gambino, who testified that Parco had tried to hire him to commit the murder just before Betty Jean was actually murdered. So the prosecution would end up also putting on MCI telephone representative Thomas Sable. He took the stand and presented a phone bill that showed a call from Warmus's home at 302 to the gun shop in New Jersey. Now, the defense would put up their own phone bill slash computer records that showed a discrepancy and contradicted the MCI bill. Their records show a call came from Carolyn's number at 6.54 p.m. the night of the murder. So the prosecutors would claim, as would the MCI representative Thomas Sable, that the defense records were phony, that they were doctored. So the gun used in Betty Jean's murder was never recovered. Now, Carolyn did not testify in her own defense, and the jury deliberated for 12 days, coming back with a hung jury, 8-4 to decision in favor of conviction. But you need 12, so Judge Carey declared a mistrial on April 27, 1991. So about eight months later, beginning on January 22, 1992, a second trial takes place. And this is the exact same trial, except for one new addition. Dun-dun-dun-dun. The black glove. The prosecutors presented a black cashmere glove that had microscopic bloodstains on it that they believe belonged to Carolyn Warmus and claimed that this is the same glove that was photographed at the scene. So why wasn't this glove presented in the first trial? One, it was never collected and or somehow misplaced. And when Detective Constantino was on the stand, he claimed it was just an oversight. So apparently, after the first trial... Paul Solomon was in his closet, and he opened up a box, and in that box was the glove. That's magical. (laughs) Magical is one word I would use, yes. Might be some others. So he claimed, again, like right after the murder, he claimed he couldn't find it. Prior to the start of the first trial, both the prosecutor's office and the defense wanted that glove, and he claims he searched every square inch of his condo. wasn't like it was a house, and he claims he couldn't find it. But right after the first trial that gets a mistrial, he finds the glove. Now, this is like three years later after Betty Jean's murder. So the judge refused to allow any forensic testing, stating that there didn't appear to be enough blood on it for DNA testing, that it would use the whole sample, and the glove's whereabouts could not be verified during the time it was missing. But for whatever reason, this judge allowed the glove to be put into evidence, which I also found a little shocking. Yeah, if the whole reason they can't do DNA testing is because it had been misplaced, why present the glove in the first place? Right, but he allowed it. So the police found evidence that they did present at trial that Carolyn had bought two pairs of cashmere gloves from Filene's basement in Scarsdale a year before the murder. However, the receipt they presented didn't say what color the gloves were. She purchased these gloves. She claims she still has both of those gloves, but the police are saying, no, no, one of these gloves was the black cashmere. The defense questioned that this was even the same glove, right? So they argued that there's no proof of this, even if it's the same glove that was seen in the photographs. And they believe that this tied into the defense theory that Solomon was trying to frame Carolyn Warmus. Because all of a sudden, miraculously, this glove appears. So also, there was a fingerprint found at the murder scene. And this fingerprint was found in blood, but it was not Carolyn's. 
and it has never been matched to any suspect. And do we know if that fingerprint was tested against Parco at all? I didn't read anything about that. Uh, The only thing I read is that it didn't match to a suspect. So I don't know if they ever looked at Parco. I don't know. But it didn't match anyone. It didn't match Carolyn, I can tell you that. So the defense under a new attorney, William Arnold, would claim that Carolyn had no experience firing guns, but that Paul did. He had firearms in his condo and he was in the military at one point. So they also pointed out that Carolyn had voluntarily agreed to talk to police the night of Betty Jean's murder. And she did so without an attorney present. Now, the next information I got was from Carolyn's own website. You can go to www.carolynwarmus.org. And she claims that she has taken four polygraph tests, I mean, right after the murder and then during her trials, where she passed every polygraph test. But of course, they're inadmissible at trial. So Carolyn Wormus was found guilty of second-degree murder and illegal possession of a firearm on May 27, 1992. So before sentencing, Carolyn Wormus gave the following statement, and this is a direct quote, I can only ask for leniency because I am innocent. If I am guilty of anything at all, it is simply being foolish enough to believe the lies and promises that Paul Solomon made to me. She was given 25 years to life for second-degree murder and 5 to 15 years for illegal possession of a firearm, and these sentences were to run concurrently. She was incarcerated at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women. Now, the same day that Carolyn Wormus was being sentenced, her attorney, William Arnold, announced a reward for information leading to the arrest of person or persons responsible for Betty Jean Solomon's death. And this reward was $250,000, and that was put up by her family. So after the first trial, the Scarsdale School District faced a lot of pressure to remove Paul Solomon from the classroom because he had openly testified in court to having multiple extramarital affairs. So some parents and community members were like, yeah, we don't want him around our kids. So in December 1991, Paul Solomon was relieved of his teaching duties and placed in a non-teaching role. They could not fire him because he wasn't charged and he certainly wasn't convicted of any crime, but they did remove him from the classroom. Now that we did talk about in Susan Reinhardt's case. Yes, we did. Because yes, that does tie back to it. Because, you know, you can't say, oh, you know, you were, we're firing you because you're involved in this investigation. Unless you're charged and convicted, you do have rights. So Vincent Parco, I did a little research to say, okay, what's he been up to since these trials? And in May of 2019 in Brooklyn, he was charged for hiring prostitutes to blackmail witnesses in a child sex abuse case he was working on. So again, kind of that headline of sleazy. Yeah, sleazy shady. Sleazy shady kind of still follows. So Carolyn Warmus did come up for parole after 25 years. She came up for her first parole hearing on January 9th, 2017. She was denied parole at that point, but was eligible to reapply in July of 2018. So I read the transcript from her first parole hearing when questioned by the parole board as to her whereabouts at the time of Betty Jean's murder, Carolyn shared that when the original time of death was 2 to 6 p.m., She was at her apartment in Manhattan, and when it was changed to 6 to 8, she had left her apartment at 6.45 and drove the 45 minutes to meet Paul in Yonkers for dinner. She did receive parole and was released on June 17, 2019 but she's on parole for the rest of her life. Carolyn Wormus is currently 55 years old, and she has been diagnosed with a non-malignant brain tumor that she hopes to get addressed now that she's out so she can get medical care outside of the prison system. So Carolyn Wormus has never changed her story and has claimed her innocence from the beginning, and she feels she's been a victim of negative media and was set up by Paul Solomon to take the rap for his wife's murder. She has asked for that black cashmere glove to be tested, especially now with 
with updated DNA testing, especially now when we have updated, you know, touch DNA. And of course, we don't need as big of blood samples as you needed previously to do testing on. But this request has been denied by the prosecutor's office. So Carolyn is receiving assistance from the Jeffrey Diskovic Foundation. Now, Jeffrey Diskovic, whose own murder conviction was overturned by DNA evidence, had received millions of dollars from this same prosecutor's office that prosecuted Carolyn Warmus. And he set up a foundation to help others with DNA testing. So this may be a case we'll cover in the future because I was reading a little bit about his case thinking, oh, wow, this sounds pretty fascinating. So we might cover it in the future. But Jeffrey was convicted at 17 of raping and murdering a fellow classmate who was a 15-year-old Angela Correa in 1989. So the DA's office ended up testing the semen that was found on Angela. And this was only after the Innocence Project had gotten involved. So he had served pretty much his teen years and his 20s in prison for this murder. And here the DNA matched a rape murderer who was a convicted felon who was currently in prison for killing a school teacher from Peaksville, New York in 1993. So he got released and he got millions of dollars for wrongful prosecution. So if you're interested, there's a lot of resources. You can go to our webpage and look at all of them. They're quite fascinating. There's been a lot of books and movies put out on the Carolyn Warmest story. It does lead to some questions. Was she set up? Or is she actually the fatal attraction killer? Thoughts, Maddie? We should set up a poll, a poll on our social media. We could, if I ever could figure out how to do that. Yes, we could. (laughs) I had a lot of questions on this case. This, you know, I first started like, okay, yeah, she did it. Scorned woman, you know, jealousy, wanting to be with Paul Solomon, you know, believing all these promises he made, you know, could she have done it? Yeah. But there's really, I think for me, the trial aspect of things, I really, the only difference between the first and second trial was the glove. And I'm really surprised that glove was let in. Yeah. And I think that too, a lot of times when we see those sort of um, the scorned woman murders, you see an escalation almost. And especially if she had that previous habit of stalking and letters that her ex-boyfriend had testified to, you would think that there would be that escalation where she would have done, you know, threatening notes to the wife for phone calls or things like that. It wouldn't just escalate straight to murder, especially when there's no there's no trigger for it. It wasn't as if there was something happening where she said, oh, well, now this is enough is enough and I'm going to have to kill her so that I can be with Paul. There wasn't anything indicating that, which again, makes me think that she didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, his teen daughter was almost graduating school. She was 16, 17 at the time at the most. She had a year or two to go. And like you said, I didn't read anything that showed that escalation while Betty Jean was still alive. Like I didn't see any threatening notes. I didn't see any harassing phone calls. I didn't see any of that, anything I read. So yeah, why she would all of a sudden turn around and murder her, I I was questionable on that. Also, I was questionable on the fact that when they had the people at the gun store when they showed a picture of Carolyn Warmus, they couldn't identify her. That that Oh yeah, that's definitely the woman that came in and bought the ammo. Plus, they didn't match the ammo from the gun store to the shell casings at the scene. And again, I go back to that glove. How was that glove misplaced? Well, and even the almost, I don't want to critique the police, but the shoddy police work in never thoroughly investigating Paul Solomon at all. And especially if afterwards there were witnesses putting him and Parco together talking about this murder, it just seems like like there was a lack of thorough investigation into him. Yeah. I mean, it, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can go back and say shoulda, coulda, woulda. Again, I just kind of, based on the fact, I don't know. 
I really don't know. I think I'd have a hard time as a juror sitting there at the second trial. If I'm on the jury and I see a black glove that you've tied to Carolyn Warmus by receipt, oh, okay, I can see conviction. And the first trial, I think those jurors that held out, I think I would have been one of them because I'd be like, well, there's nothing really here to tire physical evidence wise to this. So that is the fatal attraction killer. If any more information comes to light in terms of DNA testing of the glove, we'll let you all know. So any criminal discourse life tips, Maddie, from this one? I feel like we've said this before, but stop having affairs. Yeah. Stop cheating on your spouse. It, it never ends up well. Just don't do it. Right. And if you want to cheat, like you really don't want to be in a marriage, get a divorce or formal separation where you're not cheating on each other. I agree. Yeah, we have said that before. And we'll probably sadly say it again. Maybe they really did have an open marriage. Who knows? But then the whole I'm going to leave my wife once my kid is out the door, that kind of throws that idea out the window. But open marriages are fine too. Live your life. Just be honest about it. All right. So again, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can, of course, go to criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. That is our website that will have all of our show notes on it and the resources from this week's episode and past episodes. And of course, you can listen to us on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In, iHeartRadio, and maybe someday in the future, Pandora. So until next time, everyone, please Please, 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 if you see something, say something. Don't keep that information to yourself. You might have that missing piece that police need to solve a crime. So we ask that you be safe, but also remember we need to also be kind to one another. So until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.